Well, sometimes our best intentions to um, maintain a predictable preaching schedule don't work out like I would like in the sovereignty of God. The next few weeks on Sunday evenings will be a little bit out of sorts. Uh, Next Sunday, thanks to the work of the Lord, we'll be baptizing so many people that we're going to devote our whole service to it. And so uh, we're, we're great with that. Somewhere between 7 and 10. I don't know what the full number is yet. But we'll just enjoy being saturated in the gospel next Sunday evening. The following Sunday is the Sunday of Steadfast Bible Conference. So we generally don't have a Sunday evening service since we've been in the Word all weekend long. And, and we'll enjoy uh, several wonderful speakers. And so tonight, just to uh, complete the flat tire of our schedule... I'm going to do something a little bit different. I promise we will get back to Song of Solomon. We'll have a nice long run the rest of the fall and into the spring with very little interruption. If you feel your marriage is hanging on a thread till we get through Song of Solomon, keep the faith. We'll get to it. And if you as a young person think your future is in limbo, until you understand Song of Solomon, you hang in there as well and trust in the sovereignty of God. But once in a while, a shepherding topic or a theological issue makes itself so abundantly clear to me. It presses into my own heart that through some prayer, it seems needful for the whole church that I think would be useful for everyone. What I'd like to talk about tonight is something that I've found, I think, often causes confusion in the church, even to the point where we may, not intentionally, but we may develop a faulty theology in this particular area just due to the lack of understanding. It's a topic that's dicey in nature because it involves wisdom. It involves some gray areas. It involves some personal conscience choices. And there isn't a one-verse solution to understanding this issue. You have to understand the larger scope of the Bible's instruction on this subject. And so tonight, I'd like to talk to you specifically about the dynamics of forgiveness. The dynamics of forgiveness, specifically forgiveness as it relates to the relationships between professing believers in Christ. And I think we would all agree that this is an important topic for us. And tonight will probably be more of a Bible study because we want to construct a very solid understanding of this issue. It will be instructive for our marriages. It's instructive for our family relationships, for our relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we'll start in one text and make our way to a few others. But I want to have you turn to Ephesians chapter 4. This is very familiar to you, and this will be just really kind of our launching point tonight. And like I said, this will probably be more of a Bible study just to lay a solid foundation for this particular issue of the dynamics of forgiveness. And we'll be at the end of Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Just broadly speaking, I'm going to cover four areas to help us understand the dynamics of forgiveness and this is one of those where you kind of have to listen all the way through because we're building a theology from multiple angles here and so i'm going to just give you the first area then we'll look at ephesians 4 31 and 32 for a bit the first area i'd like to cover is defining forgiveness versus bitterness or or maybe unforgiveness versus bitterness because there's some terms we have to define defining forgiveness and bitterness. So let's look at Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, right up front, I'd like you to notice that the beginning and the end of these two verses, these two verses form a little unit. 
the beginning and the end both deal with internal matters of the heart. Bitterness and wrath and anger, those are internal attitudes put at the beginning here of that, that little two-verse section. And then at the end of verse 32, tender-heartedness. This is an internal attitude, and this internal attitude includes forgiving one another. And here's why we have to very carefully define terms. Because in this particular case, it could be easy to build an incomplete theology of forgiveness by making the common mistake of building that theology on one passage. When we say forgiveness, what do we mean by that? Well, it's most commonly used in two forms. The first form of forgiveness, we talk about the attitude of my heart. The attitude of my heart toward another. I need to forgive that person. That's the usage here in Ephesians 4.32. It's parallel, what we call in apposition to, meaning that it's the same as to being tender-hearted. It has to do with your heart. And this is the command, let all bitterness, or we might say let all unforgiveness of the heart be put away from you. That's the attitude of my heart. But there's a second form that we use forgiveness, and, and it's different. And that is the idea of the restoration of a relationship. The restoration of a relationship, the reconciliation to unhindered fellowship. This is very important because this is different than the internal heart attitude. These are two different things. I want to be as precise as we can in defining these terms, fully understanding that forgiveness has really two basic connotations, one internal and one relational or external. So what is this in verse 31? Let all bitterness be put away from you. Bitterness is a Greek word that means internal resentment. It's definitely something of the heart. It is something you're thinking. It is something you're feeling. It's a state of the heart, and it indicates hatred. It indicates malice. It indicates even a wish for harm. It indicates a joy at the harm of another. The command against bitterness is very, very clear. Let all bitterness, it's an imperative, be put away from you. That bitterness and hatred and malice are never helpful, never justified against anyone. That is, that is the purview of God. Why is it important that we are not bitter? Because we're not to judge another heart. You can't judge another heart. You can't do that. In fact, every use of the idea of bitterness in the entire New Testament is in the context of it being sinful and wrong. There's never a time when we say, well, this guy's really, really bad, so go ahead and be bitter against him. Now, there is the subject of righteous indignation. That is different, though, than, than a desperate wish for harm and malice and hatred toward another. The purposeful cultivation of hatred and malice toward another is, in essence, the spiritual murder of that person. Matthew five twenty one. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. This is important. In this connotation, you fool. This is a proverbial use of the idea of fool that says this is a person that I believe you deserve hell and I'm glad. It's an extremely hateful position to take toward another person. It takes prayer, it takes discipline, it takes confession. And I know all of you know what I'm talking about because all of you have struggled with this. But it is very clear from Scripture. So we call bitterness the state of the heart. 
It's an attitude of unforgiveness in this particular usage that's synonymous with bitterness. You aren't viewing somebody as utterly unforgivable by God. That's the spirit of what Jesus said. You never view somebody as utterly unforgivable because technically speaking, all of humanity is utterly unforgivable except for the cross of Christ, right? But let's look at the other use of forgiveness. We've defined bitterness and we've defined the use of unforgiveness uh, to speak in that realm of the heart. The other use of forgiveness, forgiveness is most precisely speaking not of the state of the heart, but of the state of the relationship between two believers. And so if we use the word unforgiveness in this context, that would be synonymous with a broken relationship. And listen very carefully. This is where our confusion often sets in. Broken relationships, unforgiveness, not, not the state of the heart, but the state of the relationship. Broken relationships or unforgiveness in this context are not wholesale condemned as inherently wrong in the New Testament. Now remember, I said wait for the whole thing here because you're going you're gonna to leave if you stop right now. But it's not condemned in the New Testament in every case. There are relationships in the New Testament that are broken legitimately. Let me give you three of them as examples. In Acts 15, Paul broke relationship with Barnabas. Acts 15 says they had, quote, a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. And this was over the fact that young John Mark was unfaithful in the ministry. But Paul broke with Barnabas. We're not told the reason, but we're given some pretty good clues The biggest clue we're given is that Barnabas and Mark were cousins and that Barnabas was essentially putting family before the ministry, that he was putting that family loyalty before the ministry. And so Paul broke with Barnabas over this issue. We know that Paul and John Mark eventually were able to reconcile because later on in his ministry, Paul praises the work in the ministry of John Mark. We see another example The Apostle John broke with an elder in the church named Diotrephes. And in fact, he intended to do so publicly. 3 John 9 and 10 says, when I arrive, I'm going to call him out. That's a broken relationship. Here's a third example, and it's more broad. But the church is instructed to break relationship with the unrepentant. The church is instructed to break relationship with the unrepentant. Now, 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, is very, Paul is very clear. He said, I'm not talking about the unbeliever who acts like an unbeliever. I'm talking about the believer who says he's a believer and yet won't repent of these major observable sins. But this is not just the church as an institution. It's very easy to agree. Well, I'll, yeah, we, we as a church, we've broken relationship with this person. Uh, what about you as an individual? We're the ones who make up the church. And you say, well, that sounds harsh. Well, just listen to what Scripture says. Matthew 18, 17. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. It means there's no longer the relationship from believer to believer that includes this this union and this joy and this communion together. That there is a brokenness to it. In 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 11, Paul gives instruction not to associate with the unrepentant who claims to be a believer in Christ. And there's no lack of clarity there at all. Paul is extremely clear. In 2 Corinthians, Paul instructs concerning the same discipline of this person in 1 Corinthians 5, that if this person repents, 
Then there is then to be restoration and reaffirmation of love. The church's discipline is not some sort of time out that has no contingency upon the heart change of the offender. There's no place in scripture that says uh, break relationship for six months and after some time has passed then just let it go. It's contingent on repentance. I could also cite Ephesians 5.11, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 Timothy 1.20, 1 Timothy 5.19 and 20, 2 Timothy 3.5, Titus 3.9 through 11, 2 John 10. That there are times when a broken relationship is the right thing. It's, it is biblical. All of these texts indicate there are times when unforgiveness as defined by a broken relationship is the right thing. And we would say that the burden of proof is on the one who denies this to disprove every one of those texts because it's an overwhelming, formidable challenge to disprove that, the, uh, to assert the idea that all relationships should always be repaired at all costs. That simply is not what Scripture teaches. Now, absolutely, there is no denying the pain involved in a broken relationship. I, I won't because it will cause too much pain, but I could ask for a show of hands as to how many of you have experienced a broken relationship, and probably most of you would raise your hand. I could ask you to keep your hand up if that relationship was still broken to this day, and probably many of you would leave your hands up. We understand that pain. It doesn't mean there can't be cordial and polite interactions, but there can't be the closeness and intimacy of believers that are are in union under the cross until the Lord brings repentance. In fact, continuing to forgive a serious pattern of sin is like feeding a monster. This is why church discipline involves the breaking of believer-to-believer fellowship so as to drive the offender to repent and to restore fellowship. It's to drive them to restoration. So bitterness is a state of the heart And it's warned against as never okay. Forgiveness is a state of the relationship and may or may not be possible depending on circumstances. So keep this in mind as we keep going. First area, defining forgiveness versus bitterness. Second area to consider as we build this theology, God's pattern of forgiveness. God's pattern of forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32, we just read that be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Again, we don't build a theology on one verse, but let's look at this one. The forgiveness that God gives in Christ is based in repentance. This is the message of the gospel. This is the core of the gospel. John the Baptist preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3 verse 2, he said in verse 8, keep Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus preached in Mark 1.15, repent and believe in the gospel. He preached in Luke 13.3, repent or you will perish. There is not a version of salvation that is repentance-less, if I can coin that term. Peter preached in Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That's a conditional statement. If you don't repent, your sins will not be blotted out. Paul preached in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I'm going to return to that in a moment. This is a slam dunk. There is no salvation without repentance. Now, how is it that we are able to repent? Well, it's because of the kindness of God. 
Romans 2.4, Paul said, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's the supernatural work of God that breaks your heart about your own sin, that drives you to your knees, that opens your eyes to see how you have offended him time and time and time again and makes you desperate to make this right with him by confessing your sin. So what is repentance exactly? Is it the emotion of sorrow? Is that what repentance is? Well, that can't be the definition of repentance, although sorrow is certainly involved. Why can't that be a definition? Well, we just heard Paul say in 2 Corinthians 7.10 that worldly grief produces death. What does that mean? It means it's possible to have sorrow over sin yet not be saved. Do we know anybody in the Bible that had sorrow over sin but wasn't saved? This is the very definition of the life of Judas. He was so sorrowful over what he did that he took his own life and yet he didn't repent. He was sorrowful, but not unto genuine repentance. So what is repentance? Well, the Old Testament idea of repentance, primarily expressed by the Hebrew word shuv, means to turn or to turn back or to turn around. It's very simple to to picture. You were facing this way. Now you're going this way. It's a change of direction. It involves actions that demonstrate change. This is why John the Baptist preached to the Pharisees, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, show in your actions that your heart has changed. You think John the Baptist would have bought it if uh, the Pharisees said, well, I haven't changed my actions, but look, I cried. Look, I was emotional. No, he said, prove it. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's the Old Testament idea, to turn, turn back, turn around. The New Testament idea of repentance enriches the idea even more, and it goes right along with the idea of turning. It's primarily expressed by the word metanoeo, and it means a change of mind, a change of mind that your loyalty has changed. The basic difference between the heart of an unbeliever and the heart of a believer is that the heart of a believer, uh, heart of an unbeliever rather, is loyal to himself and to his sin. The heart of a believer is loyal to Christ and hates his sin. And so to be very clear, to repent doesn't mean that the moment you get saved, you are suddenly sinless. It just means your opinion of your sin has utterly changed. It's the enemy now. It's not the thing you embrace and that you love. It's the thing that you hate. That's precisely what will send people to hell, an unfeathered, stubborn loyalty to their own sin because they never change their mind. And if you don't change your mind about wanting to go this direction, you'll never change directions like the Old Testament word shuv would indicate. So the two go together. And so putting those two concepts together, repentance involves a turning, a change of actions, a change of mind, a change of loyalty. Some have said, well, that sounds like works-based salvation. Not at all. It's required for salvation that you change your mind about your loyalty to sin, which would obviously then begin to bear fruit with the help of the Holy Spirit in new actions. Let me put it to you this way. Is there a person who is unforgivable? Yes, the one who doesn't think he needs to be forgiven. Jesus said it this way. Mark 2, beginning in verse 16, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, there's no one who's actually righteous, but if they think they're righteous, then they have no need of the great physician in their own mind that that puts them in the category of unforgivable. Why? Because they don't think they need forgiveness. They haven't changed their minds about their sin. My main point, though, is to establish that the forgiveness of God is based in repentance. And we'll take that on even further in a moment. There is no forgiveness without repentance. If we had time, we could hammer that point home a mile deep. It's very obvious from Scripture. Now, knowing God's pattern of forgiveness, which is based in the shed blood of Christ, His payment for sin, now Ephesians 4.32, exhorting us to be forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you, that little word, as God in Christ forgave you, becomes very important. How does God forgive? In Christ, based in the repentance of the humbled sinner. And so when we forgive... When we restore a relationship, we are to forgive as God forgives, based in repentance. As a matter of fact, and I talked to a a biblical counselor on this topic recently, just in a conversation, and we had a conversation about this, and, and he said something interesting. And I would agree with this statement. He said that to promote a forgiveness, remember, restoration of relationship, but to promote a forgiveness that's devoid of repentance is essentially to promote a form of universalism. That anything other than repentance is the means to restoration, then now we've stepped outside of God's model of forgiveness rather than a model of humble sorrow and misery over the sin and pain that one has caused. It becomes an inaccurate reflection of God's model of forgiveness. And so, we'll keep on building the theology of the dynamics of forgiveness. We've defined forgiveness, a state of the relationship, bitterness, a state of the heart. We've seen briefly God's pattern of forgiveness. I want to show you a third area here, and we're going to get in the weeds just a little bit here. I want to talk to you about the faulty theology of penance. The faulty theology of penance. Now, you might be saying, well, I'm not Catholic. I don't even know what this is about. Follow me. What do we mean by penance? Well, what we're talking about is some sort of external act or a series of acts that are meant to make up for or even pay for a sin that's committed. This does not necessarily include a desire to turn away from sin or turn away from a sin pattern. And it certainly is not speaking of leading to improved or changed behavior in the future, but just paying a price or making up for it. We even use this phrase all the time, I've hurt you, let me make up for it. Now, the idea of penance is traced back to the Roman Catholic Church. It is to do some sort of deed to make up for a particular sin. It has no reference to a transformed heart, no reference to attitude, no reference to internal attitudes, just an external deed. And you say, well, it's a good thing I'm not Catholic then. I don't have to worry about that. We see this in Protestant churches all the time, which use Christianized versions of 12-step programs. 12-step programs is a form of penance that I'm going to make up for what I've done by doing good works. And again, you might say, I'm not Catholic, so I would never offer penance. Let me give you some subtle forms of penance that we do offer 
which are not legitimate substitutes for repentance. There is no form of penance that's a legitimate substitute. But let me give you some that we might fall into. A first subtle form of penance would be a display of emotion. A display of emotion may accompany repentance, but it could be a subtle form of penance, of putting on a show that seems to demonstrate sorrow. And if you listen carefully to the words that are accompanying the emotion, you might say, wait a minute, there was no actual sorrow for the sin. There was just, there was just emotion, and I don't know where that's coming from. But there's no place in Scripture that says repentance equals crying. It doesn't say that. Another subtle form of penance, acts of service. Acts of service, again, determining to make up for your actions by doing nice things for the offended person. Now, again, that might accompany true repentance, but it's possible to do nice things. Listen carefully. It's possible to do nice things as a way to avoid dealing with the true heart issue. Here's another subtle form of penance, display of emotion, acts of service. How about gifts? Gifts, it's possible to give a gift or a series of gifts to try to make up for an offense or a pattern of sin. Listen, it is bad advice to tell a man to buy his wife a box of chocolates to try to make up for a serious sin. In fact, that sends the message that the man is really concerned about he, how he feels, that he wants to feel better, not about how his wife feels. And certainly gifts are fine when accompanied by true repentance a change of mind, a change of actions, what you're going to endeavor to do differently. But gifts are extremely offensive when they're not accompanied by repentance. Isaiah chapter 2, God is disgusted by the offerings, the gifts of Israel. Why? Because they were not accompanied by heart-level repentance. He said, I don't want them. Get them away from me. And how about this one? This may be the one we fall into the most, a form of penance, and that is time. Time. One of our common misnomers is that time heals all wounds. I would defy anyone to find a scriptural basis for this. Here's the pattern. Let's use a marriage as an example. An offense happens, one that happens over and over again. And it's a pattern. It's continued for years and years There's anger after this offense and maybe even some fighting ensues. But eventually the the couple gets tired of fighting. Everything else in life presses in. Emotional weariness sets in. So finally they kiss and make up and now they're not feeling the emotional anger anymore. They're not feeling that intensity. And so they say, well, I'm glad that has passed. But did the issue actually get resolved? No, because repentance never happened, just time And some of you in marriages can can relate to this, that the same thing happens time after time after time because the way you deal with it hasn't changed. There hasn't been repentance. And I know it's tempting to believe time heals all wounds. Let me ask you this. If time heals all wounds, then hell would not be eternal, right? If time heals all wounds, then even God would be assuaged by time. Okay, you've been in hell for 10,000 years. That's enough time. Enough time has passed, but there's been no repentance. And really, to get even more serious, the continued attempt over and over again to use penance to make up for sin, a refusal to repent, can ultimately be a sign of an unregenerate person. 
Because an unregenerate person will not or perhaps cannot humble themselves to confess the sin and to repent, to have a change of heart, a change of direction, because you can't do it with a human being when you haven't done it with God. Let me use a radical example just to illustrate penance. A man screams obscenities at his wife and has a habit of doing so whenever he's frustrated. His wife calls him out on it once again, and so he sends her flowers. Is that what she really needs? No. She needs him to up his sanctification and to work on honoring her out of a love for Christ. He needs to confess this to her and prayerfully seek to change that sinful pattern. Now, if communication to that effect accompanies the flowers, that's fine. But flowers don't make up for anything. What does God say about penance, about good works to try to gain favor? Isaiah 64, 6, our Good works are to God like filthy rags. They're offensive to Him because they're not representative of a true heart change. They're, they're surface. They're not real. Penance generally is done to try to make the offender feel better. And guess what happens? When the person receiving the form of penance doesn't bite, when they don't believe the disingenuous show, the, the offender begins to feel like the victim. The offender begins to be offended. Well, it's been six months. That's the penance of time. But I cried and cried when I said I was sorry. That's the display of emotion. But I've been doing his chores around the house for weeks now. That's the penance of acts of service. And there begins to be anger that the relationship is not restored when there's not been any repentance. Or perhaps there's the trying to deflect attention by pointing to other good deeds. A wife may confront her husband and say, in all respect and honor, I'm not okay with the disrespectful way you spoke to me. That's not honoring to me or to the Lord. And if he comes back with, don't you know how hard I work? I take out the trash, I feed the dog, I mow the lawn. You notice he didn't deal with the issue, but he tried to justify his worth with other things he does. That's just a form of prepaid penance is all that is. I've already done these things for you. You should be okay with my sin. But our relating to one another is based in God's forgiveness of us. So really, the the crux of the issue, we've defined forgiveness, the state of the relationship, bitterness, the state of the heart. We've seen briefly God's pattern of forgiveness. We've seen the faulty theology of penance. The crux of the issue, the fourth area, the focal point, forgiveness is based in repentance. Forgiveness is based in repentance. And we've hinted at this throughout our time together but I want to just hammer this home for the rest of our time. I'd like to offer some biblical evidence that forgiveness is based in repentance, not based in the passing of time, not based in the giving of gifts, not based in the display of emotion, not based in performing acts of service. First line of evidence. Turn with me to Luke 17. And we'll be in Luke here for most of the rest of our time, except for the very end. Luke 17 we have an important and very helpful text. Jesus is teaching his disciples and he shocks them with a teaching that they are not used to. It was generally thought that if you forgave someone three times in a day, you were the most righteous person around. That 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 was it. You you didn't have to expect any more than three. Number four, he can go jump in the lake because at this point I'm not going to forgive you anymore. That was the prevailing thought. Chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. 
And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And you see that Old Testament idea of repentance. He turns to you seven times. He changes. This would have been shocking to them. Seven times? In a normal time of awake, that means every two and a half hours we're going through this cycle? Well, what does this teach us? Well, it teaches us, first of all, that repentance should be followed up by very quick and immediate forgiveness, the restoration of the relationship. That there is no room for a believer to maintain a distant relationship from someone who has repented. And the primary lesson here is that forgiveness should be quick to follow repentance. But the condition is clear. If he repents, forgive him. Now this fits the exact formula in Greek for what's called a third class conditional statement. And it's a, I won't bore you with the technical reasons we know this. But it's a third class conditional statement which basically means if and only if the first thing happens, then do the second one. Did you catch that? And so the teaching of Jesus in this is, is very clear. Forgiveness, the restoration of the relationship is to be quick and gracious based upon the genuine repentance of the offender. Now, I'll note this. This is another topic for a longer discussion, but we should note that the restoration of the relationship is not the same as the restoration of trust. Those are two different areas. Forgiveness is given by grace, right? Trust is earned over time. In fact, Proverbs 25, 19 warns against trusting in someone with a history of being untrustworthy. Let's go back to this example. The guy who sins seven times and repents seven times. You must forgive him, Jesus said. Does that mean you must hire him to be the manager of your store if you own one? No, but you must forgive him. You must restore the relationship. Doesn't mean you restore trust. Another topic for another day. Now, this is very, very clear. Let me give you a second line of evidence. Repentance is not the same as saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is not the same as saying I'm sorry. There's nothing inherently wrong with saying I'm sorry. We, we do that all the time. It can be speaking of sorrow that accompanies repentance. It may be something that is unintentional. It may have to do with something accidental. But saying I'm sorry in and of itself, to be very technical, only communicates that I feel an emotion of sorrow. And so really to say I'm sorry, where's the focus? It's on me. And in some ways, it gets the focus on yourself. It says nothing about your offense or what you've done to the other person. Now, if I'm sorry is accompanied by a genuine heart of desiring to change that behavior, or if it's in response to something accidental or not intentional, they're not evil words, but neither are they a substitute for genuine repentance. There's no place that we can find in the New Testament where repentance is defined as just say, I'm sorry. Let me give you a third line of evidence. It may be easy to throw out, well, the Bible says love covers sins. Well, the biblical principle that love covers sin does not imply forgiveness without repentance. Did you catch that? The biblical principle that love covers sin does not imply forgiveness without repentance. And I'm going I'm to disassemble this for just a few minutes. It could be argued that verses like Proverbs 10, verse 12, which says love covers all offenses 
Or like Proverbs 17, 9, whoever covers an offense seeks love. Or like 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins. You could take those passages to mean that it's appropriate to simply forgive, to restore the relationship, whether repentance or has happened or not. You could argue that. And I'll come back to that in a moment, but there's two angles to understand this a little bit better. The first angle, obviously, a believer can make a choice to cover sins and simply move on. We can make that choice. For example, wisdom would dictate and good discernment that when a person makes a, a snappy comment or is impatient or says something that you know is kind of out of character for them, wisdom would dictate that perhaps you simply let it go for the sake of maintaining peace and showing grace. Would you like everybody on planet Earth to confront you every time you accidentally and unintentionally sinned against them? No, I don't, we don't think that's useful. That's not helpful. So wisdom would dictate that you show some judgment and some discernment and some grace there, of course. But wisdom would not dictate letting a verifiable and a long-standing pattern of sin, of the same sin, go. That's not loving to the offender and certainly not healthy to the relationship. Doesn't mean you're trying to perfect the other person. It's just that a recalcitrant and arrogant attitude toward a sinful pattern can't just be ignored. Not if you truly love that other person. And nor can someone compel you to forgive, to restore the relationship on any other basis other than repentance. And probably some of you have been told this. Well, you have this broken relationship with this person. You just need to forgive them. Meaning they don't understand the biblical dynamics of forgiveness. The relationship must be restored through repentance. That's the first angle. You can make a choice to cover sins. That's fine. But ultimately that becomes, that can become self-righteous. Because you show yourself in your mind to be more gracious than others who have chosen a different route. And let me give you a second angle, and that is going back to those three examples I gave you. A closer look at the context of those verses reveals a much different scenario. In the Proverbs 10 verse 12 example, the greater context is making a choice to not spread dissension and disorder by telling many others about someone's offense. And so love covers the offense by not making it public, not immediately. You're covering it not by not dealing with it, but by not telling everybody else about it. In the Proverbs 17.9 example, whoever covers an offense seeks love. This is not speaking of unconditional forgiveness without repentance, but it's the first half of a warning to not be a gossip and a slanderer. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. In other words, if somebody offends you, you don't immediately go tell 10 people. The person who does that, according to 1 Corinthians 5, is defined as a reviler, in fact. How about the 1 Peter 4, 8 example? Love covers a multitude of sins. This is a general proverbial axiom. The text doesn't say if this is speaking of the love of God or of the love of man. It just says generally that love covers sins. What is that related to then? That would be more related to the concept of atonement. The love of God covering sins based on the atonement of Christ and the subsequent repentance of the sinner. The love of man covering sins based on the atonement of Christ and the subsequent repentance of the sinner. Based in atonement, to say love covers sins, then is to say 
that you have repented and because Christ has provided for your forgiveness, I have no choice but to forgive you as well. The love covers sins. But it never says in any of those three that to ask for repentance is somehow wrong. None of those examples argue at all for forgive a verifiable pattern of sin with no condition of repentance. There's no argument to be made there. Let me give you a fourth line of evidence. I've mentioned this already, but I want to return to it. The very structure of church discipline is based in repentance and forgiveness. That's the structure of church discipline. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, restoration to the church is based in repentance. In Titus 3, verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. That's a broken relationship. And the clear implication, obviously, is that the person may be restored by repentance. The discipline described in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 14, speaks of the disciplined disobedient that the church is to, quote, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Ashamed is the root Greek word for to turn. In other words, to repent. That's the purpose. The very structure of church discipline is based in repentance equals forgiveness. It's the fifth line of evidence. How many examples of unconditional forgiveness are there in the New Testament? Zero. There are none. There's not a single example of Christ exhorting believers to unconditional forgiveness, restoration of a relationship. There isn't a single example of Paul exhorting believers to an unconditional forgiveness, a restoration of the relationship. Same with Peter and James and John, the writer of Hebrews. You can't find it. Why? Because true forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation is always based on God's pattern with us. The sixth line of evidence. There are no examples in the New Testament of penance or gift giving being a legitimate substitute for repentance. There are no examples. In fact, Acts chapter 8 tells of Simon the magician offering money to the apostles in exchange for the Holy Spirit And by implication, a right standing with God. He was rebuked soundly, quote, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money, unquote. The only way to a true heart of repentance is revealed, that the true heart of repentance is revealed is with words and actions related to the offenses. What's the common thing that we have seen in we see in movies or even unbelievers kind of instinctively want to do because they're depraved and they don't know the gospel. That is, if they sense a need to get right with God, they begin bartering with God, right? Like God needs something from me. God, I'll devote myself. I'll give 15% of my income as long as I live if you'll do this for me, if you'll save me. God hates that. Isaiah 64 is clear about that. There are no examples in the New Testament of penance as being a legitimate substitute for repentance. There's a seventh line of evidence. Repentance is necessary in the Christian life for sanctification. It's necessary for sanctification, for growing in Christ's likeness. How do repentance and sanctification, how do they relate to one another? Sanctification we might define as the the Christian proactively working at Christ-likeness by the power of the Holy Spirit. Philippians 2 speaks of this. Or maybe put it this way, sanctification is working outwardly what God is working inwardly. It's a combination of human effort and divine help. 
In the sanctification of the Christian, the battle between the will of God and the will of the Christian is slowly eradicated, that that battle becomes less and less of a fight. It's the process of completely submitting to the will of God, and this is directly connected to Christian repentance. Or put it this way, repentance is the transition of the mind of the flesh to agreeing with the mind of Christ, to change, to turn. It's it's a lifetime goal, and it ought to be progressing. You ought to be more and more sensitive to your own sin. It ought to take less and less for you to repent. And so we have a complete connection here between repentance and sanctification. Repentance is the natural, continual act of the believer actively engaged in the process of growing in Christ's likeness. Now, you might say, what does repentance look like? I like to build things on occasion. And sometimes when two nails will suffice, I, pre- I prefer to put 20 just to make sure. So we're going to just put a few more nails in this. What does repentance look like? I want to give you six examples from Scripture. We've already seen the first one, Luke 17. The first example we'll call the daily sins of life. The daily sins of life. Again, Jesus said, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. This is Jesus speaking more to the responsibility to forgive those who repent. But there is the assumption here, and that is that repentance is genuine. This is a shortened version. This is not a verbatim conversation. This is an example. Uh, you wouldn't go up to somebody that you have, you have offended and wave at them to say, I need your attention, and simply look at them and say, I repent, and turn around and walk off, right? This is representing a longer conversation, clearly. The text doesn't give the criteria for general repentance. For genuine repentance, it just assumes that it is genuine. But the repentance includes what? Words, not assumptions. Not, well, I've been nice to you for the last three months. Why would you think that I have a problem? No, there are words involved. Another example, David in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is his repentant confession after committing murder and adultery. He believed he had a need for mercy. Psalm 51, 1 and 2, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Boy, that's a far cry from, I'm sorry if I've offended you, isn't it? He needed to be transparent and honest. He had a need. He was broken. Psalm 51.3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This This is a man whose heart is broken and his sins are like replaying in front of his eyes continually. And he needs to make it right. He needed to acknowledge that the most offended party was God. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He needed to acknowledge his sin nature. That of course I've done this. I am a wretched sinner. In verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He needed to joyfully receive the discipline of the Lord. Oh, how often do we try to avoid that? But not David. He said, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. And he needed to recommit to a holy life worthy of imitating. Verse 13, he said, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. That after I repent, I will teach others to do the same, to return, to shuv. 
How about a third example? In fact, it's just right across the page from us. Turn to Luke 19. Luke 19, we see little Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus in, in Jericho, he was the chief tax collector. And he was a man who had a habit of defrauding his fellow Jews in employment by Rome. Zacchaeus was a small man who wanted to see Jesus. And he famously climbed a sycamore tree to see Jesus. And Jesus called him to come down. Jesus invited himself to the home of Zacchaeus, the the tax collector, because Jesus knew the heart of the man. He knew what he was about to do. Luke 19 tells us that when Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' house, He hurried down and came and received him joyfully. Now, what kind of tax collector who would be considered right up there with prostitutes and thieves receives Jesus joyfully? Well, let's find out. Look at verse 8. They're at dinner now. They're at his home. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, before you think, oh, wait a minute, he's giving a gift, he's giving penance. Let's take this apart. He said, he stood up and said to the Lord. So whatever Zacchaeus was about to say is important because Luke makes sure that we know that it wasn't until they reclined at the dinner table. He stands up to make a formal announcement. And the announcement is, behold, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. This is phenomenal repentance for several reasons. First of all, Zacchaeus did this publicly. He did it outside in the very crowd because the dinner would have been outdoors in a courtyard. He was in the very crowd of the people that he regularly stole from. In the previous verse, the crowds around Jesus had seen that Jesus was going to be with Zacchaeus. The crowd grumbled, means they murmured, they gossiped, they didn't like this guy. Second reason this is phenomenal repentance. Because so much of his great wealth was ill-gotten gain, Zacchaeus immediately pledged to give half of his fortune to the poor in Jericho. This wasn't an act of penance. This was an act of getting rid of dirty money and giving it back. Third reason this was phenomenal. He didn't just desire to obey the law out of love for the Lord in the spirit of true repentance. He made sure that everyone would know that his repentance was genuine. Leviticus 6.5 and Numbers 5.7 require that in this situation that what was stolen should be returned plus a 20% penalty. Zacchaeus just pledged a 300% penalty. In other words, if he had defrauded someone $100, the law required him to pay back $120. He was pledging to pay back $400. He says, if I have defrauded someone... This isn't Zacchaeus leaving himself an out. This isn't the lame apology of, if I have done anything to offend you, I apologize. It's not that at all. This is an assertion that he's defrauded so many people that he'll have to go back and check his records. Whoever I've defrauded, and it's a lot of people, it'll take time and effort to clean up his mess. And this is important. Here's a fourth reason. This is incredible repentance. He uses a present active indicative verb. I give to the poor. I restore it fourfold. Now, this can mean a certain promise, but generally, most of the time, it means something that he's doing right now, that he's already begun. 
Very possibly in anticipation and hope of repenting in person to the Lord Jesus, he had already begun demonstrating the fruit of repentance. He, he was driven to. Why did he climb up in that sycamore tree? Because he was already repenting and he wanted to see the Lord to whom he was repenting. Jesus demanded of the rich young ruler to give all his possessions to the poor because the rich young ruler had a lust for money. And Jesus told him to get rid of it and he wouldn't. Zacchaeus gave half of his wealth to the poor and it would have taken the other half to finish paying back all the citizens he had defrauded. Basically, he was rendering himself a poor man. And how did Jesus respond? Look with me at verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. What is that? That is immediate restoration of relationship. Immediate reconciliation between God and man. Based on what? On repentance. Today salvation has come to this house since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. In other words, Zacchaeus had said, I am lost and I repent. And Jesus said, because you have acknowledged this, I will save you. What did he say earlier? Those who are well don't need me. They don't think they have any need. Zacchaeus knew he was sick with his own sin. Judicially in the courts of heaven, Zacchaeus was justified, not because he did good works, but because his repentance was real and it was verifiable. Now, obviously, although he was justified, the consequences of his sin would continue. His repentance would take a number of weeks or maybe even months to go through his records. He might even have to find a different place to live. Once he got rid of all of his money, he wouldn't be able to support his current lifestyle. And there would be consequences. And yet it was so important to him to be right with God. Another example of repentance, and you don't have to turn there, but you think of the sinful woman of Luke 7. She was the prostitute or a sexually immoral woman of some kind who was standing behind Jesus at a dinner that Jesus had with a self-righteous Pharisee named Simon. The woman was overcome with grief at her own sin and gladness at the forgiveness available to her by Christ. And, and you know the story. I'm just going to take a moment on it. She wept accidentally getting Jesus' feet wet with her tears. She wiped the tears with her hair. She anointed Jesus' feet with precious, expensive ointment, probably earned by her sexual immorality. Her repentance was humiliating. It was public. It was costly. It was obviously real. Let me give you one more example, two more, rather. How about another repentant tax collector right here in Luke 18? You can turn with me there. It's, it's right here. In Luke 18, we see the contrast of the fake believer and the truly repentant believer. We can see what a real believer is really like. Jesus told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so here in verse 9 of chapter 18, verse 10 rather, he tells this parable to them. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now this is important. The Pharisee would be considered the religious of the religious. Well, of course, he's going to be the righteous one. The tax collector would be considered the worst of the worst. Well, of course, he's going to be the unrighteous one. So people hearing this story, oh, I already know how this is going to go. This is like a joke. A Pharisee and a tax collector walk into a temple. I know how this is going to go. But Jesus surprised them. 
Verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus shocks them all. And he says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What does it mean to refuse to repent? It means to exalt yourself. He told of the two men who went to the temple to pray, one the Pharisee who prayed proudly, who made an assertion, I am right with God. The other, the tax collector, stood far away in shame, wouldn't lift his eyes to heaven as was custom in prayer. He beat his chest in agony over his own sin, and he was saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. His assertion was, I am not right with God. And Jesus made the point that the tax collector was justified. The tax collector's attitude was that of being humiliated before the Lord. Just a little side note, there's some reason to believe, by the way, that this is a parable that is the unnamed true story of a tax collector named Levi that we know as Matthew. Let me give you one more example. Saul the Pharisee. We'll put a final nail in this proof here. Saul the Pharisee, the persecutor of the church, the enforcer of the Sanhedrin council, on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians, he's confronted by the Lord Jesus himself. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Saul, who would become Paul, was blinded. He had to be led by the hand to Damascus. And for the next three days, a blinded Saul didn't eat. He didn't drink. He fasted in the darkness. He was stunned at how he'd been persecuting God himself. Now this man who would be chosen by God as an apostle, the last chosen apostle, the instrument of God to carry the gospel to the Gentiles and to kings and to the children of Israel, Acts 9, he never forgot his past. He never forgot how humbled he was. Yes, Paul is the one who wrote the inspired text of Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, he is justified. Yes, we are justified. But he also wrote, 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. There he is. He is forgiven of his sin, justified, yet he hangs on to the memory of what he once was. He wrote, Galatians 1, 13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. His repentance was massive and verifiable and because of this, his life was completely different. Now, I told you earlier that repentance and sanctification go hand in hand. Does it for Paul? Fast forward 30 years. Paul demonstrated what a man who repents quickly looks like. I'd like to have you turn with me to Acts 23 then we'll be finished for tonight. Acts 23. Acts 23 records... Paul being arrested and brought before the Jerusalem council. And really, he spends the rest of the book of Acts in chains. And he's brought before the council. 
verse 1 of Acts 23, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, the assumption here, if we know Paul at all, we know that he is about to offer a very calm, very reasonable defense of the faith. And he gives this introduction. I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And you can imagine that he would begin then a sermon of some import. But he didn't have a chance to. Verse 2, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Wow, don't make Paul mad. That's the lesson there. But he's absolutely correct to be indignant. This is against the law. He's being treated as a condemned man just for opening his mouth in his own defense. No trial has been performed, and yet he's treated like a criminal. But look what happens. Verse 4, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Now, did Paul say, well, it doesn't matter that he's the high priest. Do you see what he just did to me? What he did was much worse than me. I'm not owning up to anything until that guy owns what he does. Here he is in chains before a wicked man who has treated him with wickedness. And yet when he finds out that Ananias was the high priest, Verse 5, and Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. How long did that take? About a, a minute. Here he is with the high priest who is a wicked man. Paul has definitely been wronged, and yet Paul now owns the fact that he's violated Scripture and he immediately quotes the Scripture that he's violated and he offers his humble repentance, by the way, to those who hate him. Why? Because it was not about the ones who were opposing him. It was about the fact that he had violated God, he had violated God's standards and that grieved him such that he immediately repented, even after he had just been wrongly struck. And did you notice something? He took responsibility for his part and he didn't use the fact that he had been treated badly as an excuse for his sin. What was done to him became irrelevant at that point. He owned his own behavior. So, let's tie all this up. Can you hold bitterness and hatred in your heart? No. Are you to extend forgiveness, the restoration of relationship, immediately upon repentance? Yes, Can you make a decision to simply show grace? Absolutely, with wisdom and discernment. Can you be compelled to forgive, to restore the relationship without the presence of repentance? No, you cannot. It's not biblical for you to be compelled to do that. And is there any other basis for forgiveness other than repentance? There is not. It is the only basis for forgiveness. My hope and prayer is that God would use repentance and forgiveness to demonstrate His grace among us. I want to be like Paul. I want to repent easily. I want to repent quickly. I want you to be like Paul, to repent easily and to repent quickly. But neither do we become universalists where we say in some sort of self-righteous rant, well, you need to just forgive everybody because that's what God did. God forgave the repentant, did He not? So we will honor God by acting like Him. 
I hope this has been helpful to you. I hope this will help you in your walk with Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time. The clarity in your word is awe-inspiring. And while this is a difficult and dicey topic, by the time we look at various scriptures, it becomes clear. Lord, I pray for anyone among us who knows in their heart that they are struggling with bitterness, with the internal unforgiveness of hatred and malice toward another, of believing another to be worse than ourselves. Lord, help us with that. Let the Holy Spirit cleanse our hearts to show the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace. And Lord, for all of those among us enduring a broken relationship even now, I pray that first of all, we would examine our own hearts to see that we might need to repent, that we might need to take a first step. But I also pray for the patience and the grace, Lord, to let you work. You are the one that restores relationships. And sadly, but in some cases, perhaps on this earth, they will not be restored, but in the halls of heaven, they will be. Lord, we pray for miraculous healing of relationships, that you would intervene, that your spirit would soften hearts, that you would break hearts in need of softening. And for all who are enduring a broken relationship, Lord, I pray for grace and for a belief and a trust that you will make all things right in the end. Lord, I pray that this time together tonight will help us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, that we would be demonstrators of grace, that we would be theologically accurate in our assessment and understanding of these difficult situations, that we would never harbor bitterness, and that we would beg for opportunities to demonstrate forgiveness based in repentance. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.